What personality does a narcissist have? Okay, so grandiose narcissism, people who are sort of have a sense of entitlement, they're self-centered, they might think they're better than other people, but they're also driven, assertive, extroverted, charismatic. These are people we end up in relationships with, we end up voting for them, we work for them, and then we kind of like them, and then we kind of hate them too. It's complex. <laughs> you know, people are always like, how do you tell who's a narcissist, who's a bad person? It's hard to know. If I meet somebody really narcissistic, I usually walk away going, I really like that person. What you see in the research is it people who are narcissistic sort of know it. But with borderline, you end up feeling gaslit sometimes. I love you, I hate you, like what did I do? Well, nothing, the person changed, gaslighting. And you make people insane because they can't test reality effectively. And then they can manipulate you and exploit you. When I was little, I thought that everybody was good. And then I came across a couple of people that lied about everything. It's like, are they a witch? What's happening? They're not like you. You look around the room, you care about these people. They don't. Like they will do bad things and that doesn't bother them. And you can't believe that because yeah. you can't believe anyone can do that. And when I get vibes like that, I start thinking psychopathy. So what is it that narcissistic people want? What are they looking for? Yeah, that's a real issue. Okay, Keith, let's start off. Can you give a very brief background about who you are and what you do, and then I have like more questions than we can possibly get to. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Keith Campbell, I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, which is a well-known for college football and not so much psychology, but it's where I am. I've studied, um, let's see, I did my my undergrad at Berkeley, I studied, I finished up in social personality psychology at Chapel Hill. I did a postdoc with a guy named Roy Baumeister. My advisor was Konstantin Sedakitis, if you want to know the deep background. And I've been an academic for about 23 years in the field, studying primarily narcissism and sort of issues around the self. So I'm not a, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a clinical psychologist, I'm a psychological researcher. Uh, and I work with some clinical researchers, but my focus is research. So why did you specialize in narcissism? Couple reasons. It was, um, well, I'll tell you the true story because one of my friends asked me last night, it's really curious. And, and the real story, I was in uh, University of Madison or University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we were studying a process called the self-serving bias, which is this basic uh, phenomenon you've seen with people is we like to take credit for success and blame other people for failure. So like if my students get an A on exam, like, man, I'm smart. And if they get an F, they're like, Dr. Campbell, you've made it too hard. I'm like, yeah. And that's, that's a useful thing because it keeps us feeling positive about ourselves. But I was curious if everyone did that especially in close relationships, because what happens in close relationships, I'm with my wife and Keith, you did that. And I'm like, no, my wife did. I'm like, that's going to mess up my relationship. So what I learned is it's like, Keith, your wife did that. And I'm like, no, I did it. Blame me. Don't blame my wife. And my, you know, and yeah. so I, I changed things. So this, the selfishness, that self-serving bias changes when you become, you get in close relationships because you care about the other person and yourself sort of expands to a in company or encompass that individual. And so I was interested in this question. I'm a young grad student. And so we went out to Yield Pancake Shop in Madison with Constantine and Glenn Reeder. And 
remember Glenn saying, hey, we should look at narcissism with this. And I was kind of a closet Freudian back in the day. And so I was like, narcissism? I love Freud. Let's do it, man. And so that's why that was kind of how it started, was really trying to understand how people differ on this sort of self-enhancement processes, these sort of basic self-processes. And then I was always interested in Buddhism and, and sort of more of the spiritual idea of what is the non-self, what is non-attachment, uh, you know, not being ego attached. And I could never figure out how to study that. So uh -huh. it, it's sort of like I studied the big ego to figure out what egolessness was. Because it's narcissistic. When you watch people who are narcissistic, you can watch them. It's very easy to see the ego. It's like, hey, look at me. And people are like, look at you. And you're like, I feel good. My ego's great. And you see those dynamics because with these big personalities, it's easy to study. And so I thought, well, I'll study ego and narcissist, and that'll help me figure out ego. But my goal wasn't to be a narcissist or treat narcissism. It was sort of more like, what is the ego and how can we learn to kind of let that go a little bit to be more connected? Hey, just to step in real quick, I have launched After Party for helping break down acetaldehyde, the toxic byproduct of alcohol. I don't wanna take up too much time because this episode was sweet in my opinion. So just give it a shot. There's a 30 day money back guarantee if you don't like it, free shipping in the US. It's pure third party tested, high dose dihydromyrysisin with no fillers. I swear these will make you more productive following drinking. If you do drink even a little, it's not good for your brain, it's not good for you. These make a massive difference if you are someone who is still going to have the occasional vodka soda like me they reduce nausea actual alcohol damage headaches and leave you with this nice calm chill feeling it's really impressive try them let me know what you guys think in the reviews check out fullerhealth.com code mp for 15 percent off linked in the comments enjoy the rest of this episode so i i thought we should start off by i like i'm interested in how narcissism uh, is shown in the big five personality traits, but oh, I figured yeah. you should explain briefly, like what are the big five personality traits oh. before we get into that? Yeah, so this is a great question. So when we when we do personality science or psychology of personality, we use a couple different models, more than a couple, but there, there are a lot of very specific models of personality, something like, well, narcissism or type A personality or thrill seeking or grit. So we talk about these traits, they're also what we call general models of personality. So these are sort of bigger models that are designed to capture the, you know, as much as we can get of the entirety of personality at once. And of those more general models of personality, the one that's over the last 20, 30 years proven to be the more most useful is what's called the big five. Now, there's nothing, you know, God didn't stamp five things in our genes. You know, it just, these are things we agree on as academics that work, but five seems to work pretty well. And it turns out if you take all the thousands of personality traits out there, imagine you had a thousand traits, you know, creative, kind, crazy, caterwauling, cantankerous, uh, charitable, yeah. compassionate. Sorry, I'm just trying to think of C words. And yeah, you said, hey, let's put them in buckets. And we have five big buckets out there. And the ones that are similar, they go in the same bucket. Well, when you start doing that process of throwing things in buckets, you get like five big buckets of traits. And those are the big five. And they're easy to remember because the first letters spell ocean or canoe. So we usually spell ocean because people like oceans. 
Um, so I'll go through it in that order. So the big five traits uh, in the order of ocean would be number one, which is openness to experience, which has aspects of uh, love of complex ideas and philosophy, but also an appreciation of art, poetry, aesthetics. Um, conscientiousness, which is a combination of sort of industrious work ethic, self-efficacy, and the ability to get stuff done, along with organization, focus on detail, et cetera. So it's sort of a detailed oriented, but also industrious individual. Extroversion, which most people know of is the more so this aspect of sociability, likability, but there's also an aspect of extroversion, which is assertiveness has to do with leadership or dominance. And then uh, agreeableness, which is a combination of sort of compassion, caring and warmth, but also uh, cooperativeness, sort of following rules, getting along with people, be nice. And then uh, neuroticism. And neuroticism has these components of sort of more anxiety, depression, and also volatility or instability of the self. Neuroticism is what we see with a lot of the disorders like uh, depression or anxiety. So you think about those big five traits as sort of a, a very broad map of personality. But then when you talk about a specific trait like narcissism, you can mix them together in different ways to get these more complex traits, which yeah. I can do if okay. you want me to keep going, but I'm chatting a lot. Yeah, no, that, that was a perfect overview. Um, I love personality. My dad taught me so much about personality when I was a kid, and I think it was so useful in understanding the differences between people. Um, that was a that was a perfect overview. So yeah, what what personality does a narcissist have? Yeah. So here's what happens with narcissism. So the trait of narcissism is is sort of made up of these broader traits or can be described with these big five traits. When we talk about the trait of narcissism, there's two different forms we tend to focus on in the literature. One form, the one most of your audience is thinking about or familiar with, is what we call grandiose narcissism. It's people who are sort of have a sense of entitlement and they're self-centered. They might think they're better than other people, but they're also driven, assertive, extroverted, charismatic. These are people we end up in relationships with. We end up voting for them. We work for them and then we kind of like them and then we kind of hate them too. It's complex. <laughs> you know, Tony Stark, pick your politician. It's it's that narcissism. And then there's this more vulnerable form, which has that same kind of core of self-centeredness and entitlement and disagreeableness, but also has a more neuroticism, more self focus, more hmm. concern, more uncertainty, lower self-esteem. So the more vulnerable narcissist presentation is like secretly in their head, like I'm better than everybody else. But they're kind of, sometimes we say basement narcissist or covert or playing video games downstairs, okay. yelling at people on the internet because of all my hostility and no, because no one appreciates my genius. So there are these two different faces of narcissism. The grandiose one we're familiar with, this more vulnerable form, which we don't, which looks a lot like anxiety and depression, um, unless you get to know the people clinically or you maybe see their hostility come out in other ways. So those two forms of narcissism have a little bit different recipe with the big five. So to make grandiose narcissism, what you do is you take this core trait of agreeableness, but it's low agreeableness, or what we might call trait antagonism. So ah, low agreeableness, okay. so people who are disagreeable and they're extroverted. 
So they're, they're energized, they're sort of disagreeable extroverts, which is really interesting. So you have somebody who's sort of selfish, not to end up caring about people, but really sociable, energetic, likable. So they do really well socially, but they're also kind of mean and they cause problems. So my favorite example of this lately has been the Tiger King, which I sometimes call the Lion King. But I don't know if you saw that show on Netflix with the Tiger King. Yeah, I saw a bit of it. Yeah. Okay. So there's pandemic stuff, but there's this guy <laughs> and he's like, I'm the Tiger King and he has all these tigers and he's probably kind of a bad dude. You know, when you look at the show I and I don't so. know if he killed him, he's not, he's kind of a sketchy guy, but you like the Tiger King. Why do you like the Tiger King? Why do you let this guy say he's the king of the tiger? I mean, it's, it's rhetorical. I said, it's that e extroversion. He's very energized. He has a lot of positive emotionality, a lot of extroversion, and that draws people to him. So like, oh, I love the Tiger King, man. He blows stuff up. He's got that great energy. That's that combination is grandiose narcissism. And that's why it can be dangerous because it's like weaponized antagonism or energized antagonism in the big five sense. Does that make sense a little bit? Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. That's perfect. Are there people who are low in agreeableness? Uh, so you call that an antagonism, basically high in antagonism. Yeah, yeah. But is, that, is it always the case that somebody who's low in agreeableness is high in antagonism? Well, we, we sort of use the word antagonism for the opposite pole. We just use that term. But antagonism itself can have different flavors so you can have some people that are emotionally callous they don't feel a lot you can have yeah. some people that are more mean which is not classically narcissistic it's more sort of emotionally like i'm not that invested in warmth i'm sort of more self-focused and a lack of humility can be in there so low agreeableness includes like low humility so it's capturing like a sense of superiority, callousness, lack of emotional warmth, lack of empathy, all those things go under the trait of antagonism. Okay, that makes sense. Do do people who have so Oh yeah, I'm assuming like like high levels of extroversion, low levels of agreeableness. Does that just make you into a narcissist or are there like societal factors like are does that just make you into a a narcissist well there's got to be some of those people that still are re like what if yeah. you're really high in conscientiousness as well yeah Can so that that's it? so sort of the the recipe with narcissism or prime the primary recipe for grandiose narcissism is that high extroversion low agreeableness i should say for vulnerable narcissism what you see is you see the low agreeableness and also but you see high neuroticism so sort oh, of a, a neurotic disagreeable. That's what vulnerable <laughs> narcissism is. And that's why people don't really like vulnerable narcissists. Not that they they don't like, but they just do not, they don't like them because they don't have the extroversion. They're, they're sort of insecure and antagonistic. Oh. So they can't hide it. And what they look like is they might present themselves as a little more depressive or maybe hostile and depressed. Um, but but they don't have the extroversion to really make navigate life effectively as well. Um, so I, you can describe both those those aspects of narcissism with the traits, but they're a little more than that. So you might see a little, you know, with with grandiose narcissism, you might see a little bit more, a little bit of openness. Conscientious might be a little high. They might report a little elevated, which is weird because you might think low uh, with with vulnerable and with psychopaths and. Um, Trying to think what else. 
I don't I don't know what I missed, but I probably missed one in there. Yeah, so you can describe them differently. The other way to think about it is this is sort of the foundational traits underlying these expressions of narcissism, but they get expressed through specific social dynamics. So grandiose narcissism, what you need to do is you need to use the world to boost your ego. Like if I, I would say like, if I think I'm a 10, but I'm really a seven, how do I go through life feeling I'm a 10? Well, I can dress up really well and I can, I can make myself, so I can groom to make myself into an eight. And then I can get a lot of power and money. So people kind of attracted to that. And then I can surround myself with people who tell me I'm great. And I can build a little posse around myself, build like kind of an identity bubble that keeps me feeling good. And when there's a chance to jump on a podcast with you, I can jump on the podcast. Hey, look at me. I'm great. You know, I can go be popular. I can I can draw attention to myself. So I do a lot of these self-regulatory strategies that have to do with narcissism to maintain that ego. So there's a trade aspect to it, but there's also an interpersonal dynamic aspect to narcissism as well. Are you able to make narcissistic people, one, aware of their narcissism and two, wanting to change? Or does the low in agreeableness just they don't want to change? It's a great question. So the old idea where the people who were narcissistic weren't really aware of it that they just were kind of blind to this. But what you see in the research is that people who are narcissistic sort of know it. They might not use that term, but they might. Uh, but they will say, you know, I really want to be a leader. I'd like to look at myself in the mirror. If I ruled the world, there'd be a much better place. People will believe whatever I, I like. You know, they'll, they'll agree to a lot of those things. And even, you know, even when you look at psychopathy with things like, you know, um, it's better to look out for number one. People are psychopaths like, yeah, you should look out for number one. Screw everybody else. You guys are idiots to care for about people. So there is there is some self-awareness with narcissism. They might not see the damage it's doing, but there is some self-awareness. Mm. And that's why our self-report measures work. Like that's we can, funny. You know, if if people weren't aware of it, they'd be like, I don't know. And we'd have to use, we'd have to, instead of using self-report, we'd have to get their friends or peer reports. We'd have to get their parents' reports. We'd have to get their wives or husbands' reports. But instead, we can use self-report because people are kind of aware of it. Um, in terms of change, the challenge with narcissism isn't so much the change, it's the motivation to change, which I think you're kind of getting at. Yeah. Is if you think you're really good, and when you fail, it's usually somebody else's fault because they're always kind of messing with you and no one really sees how brilliant you are. And God darn it, if they did, you'd really be a winner and you'd have your own podcast. Um, you don't you don't want to change. You know, what you want to do is change all those idiots around you who are bringing you down. And maybe if you just had a better looking girlfriend and got a new car, people would really see how great you are. So the the change it's hard to do the change part and when you get into the clinical when, and we're just talking about traits but when you get into the more clinical aspect of this a more disordered aspect this is what you see in psychotherapy where psychotherapy can work for narcissistic personality disorder but the challenge is keeping people in therapy they just drop out very quickly yeah. because it, it's that ego it's like if you've built up a narrative about how great you are and therapy involves breaking that it pushes people away, which is 
Which means if you want to change somebody, you got to go at a different angle, but that's another question. Yeah. Uh, my dad's, so I've, I've done, my dad has a personality test online at understandmyself.com that gives you a breakdown of your five, you know, personality traits and the 10 aspects. Uh, and my personality, which he's pointed out many times, I've got like everything set up to be a narcissist except agreeableness, you know, splits into, what is it? Compassion and politeness. Yeah. And my politeness is at zero. Yeah. But my agreeable, my, my compassion's at 87. Yeah. So I'm actually not that dis disagreeable in total, but he's been like, he, mm. you have to be careful because you're set up to be somebody who like, likes status and likes power and all these things. But I think one of the things that's helped me maybe mitigate the ego part of that is he also taught you're responsible for everything that happens in your life. Like even those things that you don't really feel responsible for, everything in your life is your responsibility. And so maybe there's a way to teach people who are more prone to narcissism that if they take, Jocko talks about this with radical responsibility for everything. As long as you don't blame other people for your problems, you think that's one way to mitigate oh, this? Absolutely. So, uh, so what you're talking about is like with the big, you know, with these personality traits, you can take the five and then you can divide, divide them each into two aspects, which I know your dad has done. And uh, ah, Colin DeYoung, your dad's student, uh, who's yeah, a brilliant, yeah. brilliant personality guy. I know Colin pretty well, but I know he's looked at those aspects and they're really useful. And and it, and one, one of that breakdown is exactly what you're talking about is the agreeableness. So you are like a lot of academics like me where i'm generally compassionate i want people to, i want people i love people i want people to be loving yeah i don't really listen to authority like i have a yeah, little yeah. bit of a challenge like if you tell me what to do that's a little challenging for me if you if you ask me nice i'm like hey i'm your best friend but if you tell me what to do i yeah. um and i i don't yeah so that's that politeness piece, I, I don't have as much. And that's pretty common with a lot of academics because you're, if your idea is I've got to come up with something new, that means I got to break something old. So if you're in a creative career, you're always breaking stuff and creating stuff and you got to be comfortable breaking stuff. But, but also uh, what your dad's saying about relationships as a buffer or compassion as a buffer to narcissism is dead on. That's that is really why I got in the topic was how do these close relationships buffer egotism? How do they buffer self enhancement? And when I talk about this for uh, with people, I people like you know a lot of parents like how do I make my kids not narcissistic? I'm like, well, I don't know, but I have to give them something. So I say CPR, and because it's memorable, but that's compassion, passion, and responsibility. So the third ah. of those things is you have to practice taking responsibility for everything, especially negative stuff. So when you screw up, you go, yeah, that was me. Screwed this one up. I'll do better next time. And I think as a practice, that keeps your ego out of it. You're not pointing fingers at people. You're just saying, hey, I'm responsible. I'm going to take care of this. And when you do when you do take responsibility for failure, you get a sting. You're like, God, I screwed that one up. That kind of hurt my ego. But by taking responsibility, it shows I'm capable of action. So I'm learning that I have efficacy. I'm learning I have the capability to act. And it also makes people respect me because I'm not one of those people who blames people. I'm somebody who takes responsibility. So it kind of, it, it in a weird way, taking responsibility for failure actually helps you become a more successful person and be seen as more successful because you're willing to take that responsibility and go.
Yeah. And then the, and then obviously the compassion piece is what you were talking about is that aspect of agreeableness. If you can bring up that compassion and really care about people, your ego is always in check because I'm not going to do something hurts my kid. Just never going to happen. And so if you have people like that in your life, a marriage, a relationship, a, a parent you respect, a child you love, that keeps you grounded, you know, keeps you from going out outside the outside the ego lines. Um, and then the third one I add, a little off topic, but it's passion. And it's just one people don't think about, which is like people, if you do things that you love with a lot of passion, uh, you lose your ego because you you get involved, you get in a flow state, you get excited. And so it's almost like an egolessness, egoless state. But afterwards, you kind of feel stronger because you went through it. And people look like you because they love passion. People love to see passion. You know, they love people who are stoked doing what they're doing. Um, so if you if you just focus on being passionate, you can get a lot of those ego needs met without having the ego in a uh -huh. weird way. So. I like that. Okay. So it's not it's not necessarily a lost cause if you're very extroverted and low in agreeableness if you try to implement this CPR. Uh, no, and can I you even change sorry, can you can you actually get somebody who's low in compassion to be more compassionate? Don't they just yes. not really care in the first really? Okay. Yeah, how do you do that? So uh, um well let me Personality can change. And what we've found in the last 10, 20 years of research, especially the last 10, is you can really change personality. Not huge amounts, but you know, you can move people around. The second thing is when you said lost cause, I would never say that. Personality is a trade-off. All of our traits have pluses and minuses. If I were more of a jerk, I would be rich. My wife, my excuse me, my ex-wife in my jerk life, you know, would have half my money. So I might not have as much, but I would have made a lot more money, you know? So these things are trade-offs. And so I wouldn't ever think about it as a lost cause. And in terms of, hey, I want to increase my compassion. Well, there's techniques to do. So one of the classic ones people talk about are like loving kindness meditations, which I think come out of some of the Tibetan Buddhist traditions, which is you know, you start off thinking how much you love your mom, and then you say, and you expand that love once you get to think about how much you love your mom to, you know, maybe your friend, and then maybe from your friend to a stranger, and then maybe from a stranger to somebody you don't really like. Like, I really love that. You know, so you practice feeling love for somebody you don't like, which is a challenge. But I saw the Dalai Lama back in the day talk about his great gratitude to China for destroying Tibet. Said, I'm grateful to the Chinese for destroying Tibet because if it didn't happen, we wouldn't have moved out. And now Tibetan Buddhism is spread around the world. Uh -huh. And I sat there and I thought, he is a better man than I am. You know, I'm still pissed. And I wasn't even my country. Um, so so that kind of practice, but but a lot of the practices I think are, are literally just being intentional about being a better person. So for myself, I. I I like to get stuff done and I drive and I, I used to get incredibly angry driving because like everybody's an idiot. The world's falling apart. I'm driving I'm like the world's falling apart. Oh my God, I'm an idiot. I'm screaming, I'm yelling. And my heart's just pumping. I'm like, my cardiologist is like, he's just buying, my cardiologist is like buying a new G-Wagon because he's like, dude, he's going to need so many bypasses. I'm going to be just a legend. 
And I realized this isn't helping me. And I and I was at yoga one day, and one of my yoga teachers go, "Well, whenever you're stressed, just say God wants me to be slow." I'm like, "Well, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, but I'll try it because it's whatever <laughs> I'm doing's not working." And so whenever I get frustrated, I start going, "Well, God wants me to be slow." I just started doing I just a very very basic behavioral intervention. This is like just the basic cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, I could have just had a rubber band or something, you know. It huh. worked. Just took a few months of doing that and pretty soon I became a not aggressive driver. But it's dedicated action and intention over time towards a goal. It's a practice. You know, so you make it a practice to be a nice person. I'm going to be a nice person to people. I'm going to just shake hands, be nice. And you say, I'm going to do that. When I'd fail, hey, that's okay. You're never perfect and I'll get, get better. So I, I'm a big believer in if you want to be a different person, just make an effort. And if you do that over time, because what happens is you start being, in the case of nice, you start being nice to people. And at first it's not going to work because people aren't going to believe it. But after time, yeah. people are going to be nice back to you and you're going to get reinforced for it. And you're going to start going, oh, this being nice to people helps. People like me. And then you're going to get attacked because you did something. You got canceled. You said the wrong thing. You know, I won't even say it because I'll get canceled. I don't want to do that. And then everyone attacks you. But because you're nice, people are like, hey, don't kill Keith. He's a pretty nice guy. You know, so you go, oh, I'm glad I was nice to people. It didn't seem to do any good, but they didn't want to attack me. You know, before everyone used to want to attack me. Now they they don't seem they don't like to. They will, but. You know, so I'm a big believer in change via just intentional practice over time. I think we can do it. I like that. I think I did something similar um, with situations that I, I like to like control as much as I can. And I think part of that is because I was taught this like radical responsibility. I was like, okay, well, if I'm responsible for everything, then I should be able to change certain situations. And there are some situations you actually can't change and you're not responsible for, but it's better to just err on the side of you're responsible for everything. And so I started for these situations that were just like, okay, I've tried everything. I can't really change it. Um, I like figured this is only in the last couple of years, really let go. And it was the, it was the same kind of like, God wants me to be slow, but more like, you know, this is some sort of, this is just something that's happening and, it, and it'll end. And I didn't have to enforce my control on it. And that helped a lot, like that you're not necessarily in control of everything, even though things are your responsibility. It's like a balancing act, but that helped me. I really like that because I might have a control issue or two myself. And that kind of more Taoist process of just standing back and lets things happen and just not try to go in there and change it and break it because a lot of times you can't. Yeah. And then sometimes you realize when you're not in there messing with things, they work out by themselves. Yeah. Which is, so you kind of trust the process. I never believed that. My mom was much more like hippy dippy. Uh, it is what it is. And I was always like, it never is what it is. You can always do something about something bad happening. But then the more I've kind of relaxed on that, while taking responsibility for what I can, the more I've realized, like, sometimes things do work out. You don't meddle around with them, even if it takes a while. I have, I have, 
I've gotten to that place too, kicking and screaming. And sometimes I think about it in sort of Jungian terms, which is usually not what I work, but it's almost like moving from thinking to intuition. Where yes. in the Jungian system, instead of thinking and trying to control and logic, you go up to the intuitive system and you just kind of let the vibes happen and you vibe. Is that, yeah. yeah I mean, that kind that, of makes that's, sense. That's exactly, that's exactly it. Yeah. And I think like taking after my dad, I never took that, the intuition part or feeling things out without being able to logically explain them. I never took that seriously. I was always like, that's my mom. I don't know what she's doing and I don't understand it at all, but it doesn't seem right. Um, and then I don't know the last couple of years of like, no, there's something to that. If, if you're, if you are intuitive and you can kind of relax a little bit, sometimes things work out. So that's a bit of a relief. Yeah. I was talking, my sister's a, uh, a psychotherapist out in the Bay area. And I was talking to her about this actually today. And she's like, I get these vibes. I said, yeah, I do too. Sometimes I said, you know, if you look at a lot of the, the, the writing on religious practice or, you know, like I said, Jung, Jung's writings on this. It seems like a natural progression that if you you learn stuff, you practice, eventually you kind of get this ability to use your intuition effectively. You know, you see it in the in the Yoga Sutra. They talk about it, about like cities or whatever. Um, you see it in Jung. But I think that if you practice thinking, you realize there's a limit to thinking because you can't really define everything. The variable like we're living in an incredibly complex world. And our, us academics, we we kind of cut the world into a real small box. And I go, I could figure out that box. But like, dude, that's not the world. That's the box you made. But the whole complicated thing, like maybe your your thinking part isn't enough. That's really useful at times. But yeah. you got to kind of use your, and this is, again, this is Jung talking about your intuition. You need to recognize patterns at a deep level and sort of start navigating those patterns, like swimming through the patterns of life. Okay. That's cool. I didn't know that that was young. I'd I'd figured when I started kind of tapping into that and realizing that that was actually real. I didn't even know that was real. Um, what did I What did I know? Because we don't teach it. It's our fault. I mean, I'm a personality. So yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Well, it's also like it, it's, it's kind of woo. To explore. It's kind of it kind of sounds woo. Yeah. And I figured out like once I s- started seeing patterns and realizing that it was real. Um, I thought intuition was a recognition of patterns that you couldn't logically explain and your body's giving you these signals because you've you've learned what the pattern means, but there's nothing logical going on. So sometimes it's just better to go with that feeling, especially if it's strong, than to try and figure out because maybe there are too many variables involved and you just can't explain it to yourself. But I had no like no idea. Uh, it's very hard to predict complex systems. Look at meteorologists or economists or anyone yeah. else. They're terrible at it because it's hard. It just doesn't, because our models don't, they break down with complexity very quickly. And if you're in a complex world, you have to use a different kind of decision. In the, in the old days, you know, they go have oracles and people are like, well, what kind, why oh, would yeah. you have an oracle? You're an idiot. Well, the Dalai Lama went to an oracle or the Greeks went to an oracle. Um, because in a complex world, you know, that kind of work, the oracles, you know, think of the Vikings, like that show Vikings, you go to the oracle, the oracle goes up to the clouds, he talks to the gods, it goes down to the underworld, talks to the gods, and the oracle gives you some kind of vague information. And that sort of sparks your intuition, and that makes you go. They're doing that because how else do you make a decision in an incredibly complex environment with limited information? 
Like, well, I got to find the guy with the vibes, you know, or the, the woman yeah, with the vibes, the vibes. <laughs> the vibe woman who's, you know, sitting over a gas chamber in Delphi. And I'll ask her what she thinks. And she'll go into a trance and tell me something. I got to run with that. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It's very interesting. So if the personality traits that can lead to narcissism, if they're low in agreeableness um, and high in extroversion, are men more likely to be narcissistic or do you see a pretty even split? It, it Yes, but it also depends on the form of narcissism. So with uh, grandiose narcissism, with the high extroversion, low agreeableness, you see more men. When it gets to the clinical disorder or the narcissistic personality disorder, it's about uh, 75% men with the diagnosis. Oh. So meaning, and so there's two explanations for that. One is if you get a few more men on average, when you get to the extremes of the distribution, you're going to end up with a lot more men. It also could be that clinicians tend to kind of bucket men as narcissistic, whereas they say a woman with similar traits, they might say, oh, she's borderline. Or they might say she's histrionic. So they might use a little different language. So something like histrionism, which is really the extroversion, this diva-like disorder, they might use that instead of narcissism. Whereas the men, they might say it's more narcissistic. So that could be a reason too. It's hard to know. Uh, but with vulnerable narcissism, which has a lot of neuroticism in it, that seems to be equal between men and women. Because on average, women oh. are a little more a little more neurotic than men. Men are a little more antagonistic than women. So you add it up, and with the vulnerable narcissist, you end up with about the same. Okay. Even though we always think, I don't know, I always think of men with vulnerable narcissism in particular, because I think of some of the school shootings and things. Um, but it equal, it's equal. So you mentioned borderline. What's the difference between in personality traits? What's the difference between borderline and narcissism? Ah, uh, it's a great question. A little complicated. Borderline itself is the term borderline uh, originally meant the line or the border between neurosis, which is sort of everyday unhappiness, misery, and psychosis, which is more extreme delusion. So the psychoanalyst said the borderline between those. That's why they call it borderline. It's not Lovely. a good term for it. <laughs> So that's what it means. You're like, you're borderline psychotic, but that's really not what it is. What it is, it seems like when I talk to people who do this work really well, is that it, it, at core, it's, it's difficulties regulating emotions. So it's really loaded on trait neuroticism, primarily with this emotional dysregulation. But you also see some antagonism. You also see some... Uh, you also see some uh, a lot of neuroticism with some antagonism and some low conscientiousness some impulsivity. You know, when you get behaviors like cutting or things that you see with borderline. So it, it, it's kind of a disorder, but when you look at it like a trait, it looks like narcissism, but with more neuroticism and less conscientiousness. It's kind of, Ooh. sometimes the clinicians almost talk about it as like less well-formed narcissism, like Narcissism is when you got it together and you have a well-structured defense mechanism and borderlines when it's not quite as well-structured. That's kind of the Kernberg cohort. You know, I that, sorry, this is getting a little wonky with old school psychodynamic stuff. Uh, but at a trait level, it's that more neuroticism with borderline, uh, lower conscientiousness, and probably less extroversion. That sounds brutal. Yeah, borderline is a real hard thing because um, 
Yeah, because it's that emotional dysregulation. And I remember working with, like, I'm not a clinician, just want to say that, but when I did work in hospitals and with borderline uh, patients, there's just so much, because people feel uh, when they're out of control emotionally, or sometimes they feel empty inside, they can't connect anything, they want to feel something. So sometimes they, they cut themselves, you know, just to feel that pain, which kind of focuses the self, makes them feel real. It, it, it's not it's a tough condition we have some real good treatments for it now because there's a lot you know it's a you know so there are good you know dialectic behavior therapy there's some other good therapies for it to kind of focus on but it's a hard one my dad always said if you, if you meet somebody borderline just run <laughs> that was it he had, he had no solutions he's just like just avoid that person <laughs> it's a very it's very hard because it you know they, in the movies, it's you sometimes what they'll show to show borderline is is what they call split object relations. How do I say that? I love you. No, I hate you. So the it's very hard to have an integrate. So we're all kind of good and bad. You know, we're all we've all got this shadow. It's you know, we're all kind of a mess. I try to be a good pe person, but I do bad things. I yell at my kids sometimes. I hate myself for it. And then I hate myself for hating myself. Then I double hate myself. And then, then I'm praying, you know, I'm just a mess. So we all, we all, um, we all, we all have these, these challenges, uh, kind of in life, but, but with borderline, it, it's just harder to control the emotions. And so I hate to say avoid people like that, but really it's harder to have relationships with somebody who has that emotional dysregulation because you end up feeling gaslit sometimes. I love you. I hate you. Like, what did I do? Well, nothing. The person changed. So sometimes people say that they definitely say with narcissism, you know, if you were somebody narcissistic, you know, I was it's my my line. My dad said to my my sister, which is, you know, get a U-Haul, leave a note. That was his suggestion. I, I put that on a T-shirt. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's obviously there's you you people stay in relationships with people with even disorders because they're they're committed. They have children. They want it to work. They do the hard work of therapy. They bring it back together. It can work out great, but it's a lot of work. Okay, so one more question about I think kind of these topics. I've met a few people in my life. When I when I was little, I thought that everybody was good. And I don't think that anymore. But I thought that everybody I met was kind of the same as me. Not that I'm saying I'm like good necessarily, but I just put my personality on everybody I met until I was about 23. Um, and then I came across a couple of people. I think I've come across four people now um, that lied about everything. And I mean, like, you know, very weird way. They'd even recounting what happened, it wouldn't be quite true. So whatever reality they were living in just wasn't real, in my opinion. And it was everything. And it made it very difficult. Like vibes were way off. If we're talking about vibes, vibes are way off. Very like dangerous feeling situation. Have you ever come across people that just twist everything a little bit? And what is that about? Well, yes. Uh, what you said before was exactly right on. So there was a psychiatrist named last name Masterson in in Manhattan back in the day who was a he was the narcissism legend. And when he used to talk about it with people, he'd say, "Look, because you do, people who are narcissistic just don't care. I mean, this is at the extremes. Okay, this is sort of at the extreme level." 
they're not like you. You look around the room, you care about these people. They don't. Like they will do bad things and that doesn't bother them. And you can't believe that because yeah. you can't believe anyone can do that. And I get I get snookered by narcissists all the time because I'm like, I can't believe you do. I can believe you'd show off, get attention. But when people do the evil stuff or the the massive deception or dishonesty, which has this little psychopathy feel to it, uh you go, why are you doing that? Like, I don't yeah. even see the upside to it. You, you know, you got some skills. You don't even need to. This is insane. Um, yes, there are people like that. Um, you, you look at some cult leaders. Uh, there's a cult, the yeah. NVIXM cult. Oh, yeah. Uh, remember that? Where they branded the celebrities. And it was a... Anyway, I talked to one of the guys in that cult. And he was telling me the same thing you just said about the cult leader. Like, bad guy. Heard about other people, you know, you think they're good guys, just bad guys. So, yeah, that's a real issue. Uh, the term we use in the narcissism world, uh, not in the world, but it kind of came up as gaslighting. So yeah. you end up with these people and you feel like they're distorting reality all the time and it makes you feel uncomfortable. And so the term people will use is, hey, you're gaslighting me. And that, I mean, if people aren't familiar with it comes it's a weird word because it comes from an old movie which i think was a play before that where a, a husband was trying to mess with his wife make her think she's going crazy so he'd like change the gas put the gas lights down she's like the gas lights are down he got like no they're not honey are you going crazy and they turn it back up and she's like they're messing with me. like oh you must be you know so admit, you know there's noises in the attic i don't hear anything and his friends up there pounding the door i just made that one up that and you make people insane because they can't they can't test reality effectively. So the people, when they feel detached from reality, they start to freak out very fast. Yeah, because uh, we're always we're always dialed in, and when that reality connection breaks, that reality testing breaks, um, it can make you very uncomfortable. And they do that; they're kind of doing that to break your hold on reality, and then you can't control yourself, and then they can manipulate you and exploit you. So I'm a cult leader. I'm like, I could start a cult, right? I'm a I'm a extroverted guy and I seem confident. So I could start a cult, no problem. I get people to come in. I'm nice at first. And then what I do in a cult is I start gaslighting them. And then they, I start cutting them off from their old friends and family. Because if I'm gaslighting them, they go to my go back to their friend. And the friend's like, dude, Keith, the cult leader's a jerk. He's yeah. lying to you. So I'm the cult leader. I'm like, no, you got to stay with me. You got to hang out with the cult. And then the cult all talk to each other and they take that gaslit narrative. And because they all agree on it, it's, it turns from gaslighting into reality Ooh. because reality becomes socially constructed, right? So then you have everybody in the cult believing this gaslit reality. And then if somebody outside comes to threaten them, they will all attack that person. Right. Because they, they're defending their belief systems. Well, I'm getting off base here, but what the heck? You, you guys are smart. You've got a smart audience. So when psychologists started looking at something like this back in the day, a psychologist at Stanford who was interested in, in self-processes named Leon Festinger wrote a, wrote a book called When Prophecy Fails. And maybe people are familiar with this, but he wanted to study cults. This was back in the 50s, 60s, and they weren't worried about the cult leaders killing you or anything, that people were nice. He sent, <laughs> uh, he sent a student up to a cult near Chicago. I think it was like Marion 
something. I always think it's like Mare from the Planet Claire, like the B-52 song that was before from bef- when before you were born. Um, and the cult predicted the end of the world. Everyone in the cult thought the world was going to end on a certain day. Cult later said it would. World didn't end. Everyone in the cult's like mad. And the cult later <laughs> goes and goes and prays and comes back and said, hey, good news, guys. I skipped a couple chapters, but good news, guys. The world didn't end because God was so impressed with you that he decided uh, to spare the world. You're like the new Noah's. And then people started believing that. They're like, yeah, that story's good. That's, this is the, the root of cognitive dissonance. The dissonance would be, I gave myself up for a cult. I'm an idiot. But yeah. the new story is, I'm the smartest person ever. I gave myself up to the occult and saved the world. And then those people started proselytizing. So meaning they started going out and telling other people, hey, join our cult. We just saved the world. So they started recruiting people into it. So so this gaslighting at this extreme level seems like it wouldn't work. But if you can control people enough and get three people to believe the gaslit story, it, it can become something like a cult and become self-reinforcing. That was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying oh. because... You just watch the world, and it has been one big festinger experiment. It's unreal. Yeah. Yeah. I think I understand that better after meeting a couple people that really confused me, where it was just like, I'm like dizzy after talking to you. Like, what? what is that about? It's like, are they a witch? I don't even believe in witches. But like, what's happening right now during this conversation? I don't understand what's going on. It's just the weirdest experience. And when I get vibes like that, I start thinking psychopathy. And uh, you know, what is what is psychopathy for versus narcissism? Well, they're kind of this, they're kind of cousins, you know. I don't know, but I, when I think of that real exploitation, real manipulation, real intentional, yeah. that real kind of nefariousness, you know, a lot of narcissism, you know, classic narcissism is, hey, look at me, I'm a big deal. You know, yeah. and if people look at you and you're big deal, you're okay. Like you're you're fine as long as you feel like people think you're cool. But when you're out there really just systematically breaking people and destroying them in a malicious and intentional way, it, it kind of spills into psychopathy and even sadism. And it, yeah, you get vibes like that. Just get the heck out of there because you don't need that in your life. Um, and people will sneak up on you because they're good at it. You know, I mean, I've voted for some real bad politicians because they're pros (laughs) and the people who go through life like this are professionals. So don't blame yourself for getting taken advantage of because they're good at it. You know, it's what they do. Do you think. So there's one person in particular. I don't even know if they were aware, like because I would say that's not true. Like I know. And once I figured out what was going on, I was like, okay, that's not true. That's not what happened that this entire framework of like is wrong. And they didn't, I don't know if it was like manipulation, but it seemed so deeply entrenched that they were believing it. So it was harder to pick up on because you weren't, you know, normally when you, when I lie, which I really try not to do, I am acutely aware that I'm lying. And it's like, it's for a purpose, especially when I was a teenager. I'd be like, oh, I did something bad. I don't want to get in trouble and I'm going to lie about it. Very like top level, surface level lies. And this kind of manipulation of reality that I'm talking about 
it feels like that person believes what they're saying. Yeah, you're a ter- you're gonna be a terrible narcissist feeling guilty lying to people like that. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, no, um, I know exactly what you're talking about. I I'm like trying to think if we have some great research on this, and we don't because I think this is deep stuff. I know in a lot of the evolutionary work, they talk about lying that if you believe it yourself, you're more effective at it. Yeah, and you almost get the sense that there's this sort of confabulation like people are just making up reality and they're like i'm just going to go with this reality and if it doesn't work i'll just drop it and go with another one um there was a movie called regarding henry back in the day and i can't even remember who was in it but i just remember they had a great character like that who was kind of a mimic and would just sort of embrace these roles um very narcissistic so i i think that oh, i know that is a thing because i've experienced it and i do get the sense like you that there is People, it's almost like they just put on this outfit like it's real, but you also see where they'll cast it off and just grab another one. You're lying. Ah, okay. Well, this is what happened. Well, dude, that's a lie too. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, you don't even know what the reality is. Well, that's not how I operate. I just put on an act. And then when I get my needs met, I put on another act and I'm just going real fast making this all work. And when you see people, so when I, when I, you know, people are always like, how do you tell who's a narcissist, who's a bad person? Um, it's very hard to know directly. So like, I'm talking to somebody, I, especially in a short communication, it's hard to know. If I meet somebody really narcissistic, I usually walk away going, I really like that person. Yeah. Um, so what you need to do is you need to either look at their history of relationships or their, so what you'll see with somebody like you're talking about is you're going to see train wreckage through their life. You're going to see damage. You're going to see lost relationships, bad, broken business deals, dishonesty, maybe criminality. If you're dealing with some real impulsivity, uh, you'll see a train wreck. They did not get through life killing it up to that point. Uh, they might hide it, but it will be there. Um so always like in relationships in particular, like see a history of that person, look at how they relate to their parents, you know, the whole thing. And then um, the other thing is look at how they treat people they're not interested in. So, you know, maybe somebody's, you know, you're a high status person. So maybe it's really interested in you, but they go, how are they treating the wait staff up here? How are they treating the, how do they treat the, how do they treat the bellhop at the hotel? How do they treat other people? And what you'll see is people who are narcissistic, they, you know, it's harder for them to sort of treat people who are below below them in quotes on the social hierarchy, treat them like humans, you know, because it's a status thing and they think they're better. So sometimes you can see it that way. You can see flashes of meanness or things, but it's real hard to tell. I think, yeah, it's so creepy. I had no idea, like, until I met a couple of people that I was like, oh, wow, you don't you're not even in the same world as me. Uh, I had no idea that even existed. I couldn't fathom how that existed. It's really like the human brain is so complicated. It's crazy. And I just like, I'm just, the older I get, the more I learn how complicated like belief systems are and reality and ugh. <laughs> I've been doing this a long time. I don't really understand the human condition and I've really tried. Um, I also think, and we don't have great data for this, but when I hear stories like that, I often wonder about early trauma. Yeah. You know, because because trauma is something that doesn't turn you into a narcissist, because it, it, but it does 
because it, trauma can go all sorts of ways. Like it can make you depressed. It's it's a but it's associated with all sorts of negative psychological outcomes, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, all those kind of things. Other you know being in a war zone when you're a kid, whatever, uh, losing a parent, uh, you know having an alcoholic father. All those kind of things can lead to trauma and and people trying to trying to build a, a life to to kind of not have to go through that again. And again, it's not specific to narcissism but i think when you see people where there's a break in their personality that can be something that to at least look at as maybe a source for it now that makes it like sad right because a couple of these people i met that twisted reality and i was like you're just every sentence you say there's a lie in it it's bad um had really difficult things happen to them really early on and so when they go back and say, well, this is what my life looked like. And you see all these train wrecks, but you're like, oh, but this really, these really terrible things happened. And that kind of is what ha like what made the train wrecks. So then if you're a forgiving person, that's dangerous. I feel like just avoidance is, a, is well, better. I, I think it's in terms of, if it were my dad I'm talking to, I'm like, be avoidant, you know, just stay away it's not worth the you know people have to go through stuff on the other hand i think it's useful to have compassion for pe people even when sometimes yeah. they're kind of bad people because you see there's a source to this and they were at one point a victim and i think yeah. and you know like i said we're all good and bad we all can be bad people we not, might not think we're being bad i i could uh you know yell i i there's, I, I guarantee you there is something I stressed or yelled at my daughters about for five or 10 years that I thought I was helping them be better people. And really what it was, was my own fear about the future or something from my childhood that I was projecting out to them in an effort to save them from my past that wasn't their yeah. issue. And I was doing it out of what I thought was love, but it was really out of fear. I don't know what this is because I, I but I because if I discovered I'm going to do it, I guarantee I did that, and I don't think that's uncommon. Because the more I learn about myself and my own kind of issues, the more I realize my best stance with my kids is just to be loving. Like everything else is kind of nonsense. Like if I can be loving and be present, everything else takes care of itself. But you know, especially when I was younger, I was trying to. Oh, I got to get them this way. I got to get them this way. I got to in coming from a good place, but also coming from fear. So I think that having compassion for people is is useful at some point. Yeah, some point yeah, in I your know. journey. Agreed. And I I think da like Dad taught me that too. Is you're going to get screwed over by people. People are going to do terrible things to you, and that can't like warp your view of people. And I'm concerned, at least at, at this point, I'm pretty, I'm a little bit warped in my view of people. I'm like, hey, just don't, like my go-to isn't trust anymore. It's distrust until I trust. And I think that's because I had really terrible boundaries for a long time where I was just like, everybody's good, trust everyone. And then I got hit really hard a number of times. It was like, oh, so then I've just gone into the, into the other direction. But like compassion with actual boundaries is somewhere where you want to end up. Yeah. I, when I, again, I don't give advice, but um, except to my kids, uh, and even then I'm tenuous about it, but my one thing to consider in relationships is to go slow. 
you know, if you're if you're stepping into relate, just take your time because if you, when you when I hear about people kind of get hit by really narcissistic or psychopathic uh, partners, uh, often it's a very you know they they'll say love bombing in the common parlance, but often it's very quick, it's very dramatic, it's very emotional, um, and I just say go slow, just. Yeah, just go slow and let and get to know the person well, you know, and, and that's hard to do with high energy narcissistic people sometimes. So, yeah, don't <laughs> trust, you know, trust, but verify or, you know, don't trust until it's earned, I think is really smart, especially in this modern world where we're running into people we've never known that we meet online. We're like, ah, cool. I like everybody. Yeah. And yeah, uh, there's always, you know, there's always sharks in the in the dolphin pod. Yeah. I don't know what kind of metaphor that was. I was just trying to make a metaphor. Sharks, in the, sharks in the dolphin pod. That might be my pod. I never had a podcast, but if I did. It might be called Sharks in the Dolphin Pod. Uh, you know what? That's great. I, I could stand behind that. I've got I've got a whole bunch of questions we didn't get to because we went off on so many tangents, but the That's tangents fine. were better than the questions, so it's fine. responsibility for that, Mikhail. It's 100% me. No, no, no. You don't get full responsibility for that. Um, what, what do you, yeah, yeah, it's helpful. That's been very helpful to me. It also gives you a feeling, like I said, I like the feeling of control. If you take responsibility for everything, it does stabilize you. Then there aren't these external factors that like, oh, that might wreck my life. That might wreck my life. This is wrecking my life. It's like, no, it's all you I'm like, oh, okay. And then I, and I also don't get jealous of people because yeah. I look, I look at people's success and what I see is hard work. And I go, yeah, I yeah. can be that successful too. I just got to sacrifice these three things and I'm not willing to do it. But God bless that person who did. I respect them for that. Yeah. Just makes That's it better. That's great. That, that, it does make it better. Otherwise, you just walk around jealous and resentful yeah. and miserable. Resentful. And oh, you guys are crushing it. I'm just a loser. Yeah. 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 Respect people for doing it. I, the reason I'm not there is because I chose not to. I might not think that, but that's what happened. It's up to me. Yeah. Or maybe you chose other things too, right? Like people also look at look at people who have tons of money and, and all this. And what exactly did they have to lose in order to get there? They didn't just end up there. They either like worked flat out. Maybe their relationship suffered. Maybe they don't have kids. Maybe they don't spend any time with their kids. Like it's not just yachts. It's there's very often a price that you do not see for what people have that looks really exciting. Yeah. World's complicated. Very. Yeah. Um, so what is it that uh, that narcissistic people want? What are their goals? What are they looking for? Um, that, so the simple answer to that is sex status and stuff. That's kind of how I just shorthand it in my own mind. But but the primary goal would uh, say the primary goal would be something like social status and esteem or attend, you know, attention seeking, or maybe in the clinical edition, they'd say admiration, ego needs. So you're looking for something. And a lot of times that's associated with status. So when I say sex status and stuff, that's kind of how it spills out. It's, I want multiple sexual partners, attractive sexual mm. partners, arm candy, because I mean, this was my dissertation. It was basically like, I want somebody who's a high value mate so that it makes me look good. I don't care about the emotional stuff as much. I care more about status. Um, 
And then with status, it's going to be, I want to be a leader. I want to be a celebrity. So people who want to be celebrities or want to be leaders, public speakers tend to be more narcissistic. This, I mean, I, this is me. So I, you know, it's not a, a slam. Um, you know, you do research on church. They did a study on churches in Canada and more narcissistic pastors or priests had longer, larger congregation, larger congregations. So it, it's that, that status piece and then stuff. It's material goods that convey social status. These are designer handbags, you know, designer watches, watches, uh, fancy cars. I love watches too, but they're their status <laughs> thing. And, uh, you know, fancy car. I'm looking at my minivan out there, which is sort of an anti-status minivan. Um, so people will buy material goods. Once they own those, those kind of become part of yourself. We call it the material self. And then you can get ego needs meet. Hey, Keith, I love your new car. I'm awesome. So that's kind of how they do it. They're regulating for status via. And what's creepy about that, since that's where we're going, is because the goal is ego, you can swap those things out, meaning I could trade a new girlfriend for a new Porsche and they do the same thing for me. They're substitutable. Oh. Right. Like if somebody like I have a great girlfriend and somebody's like, dude, I'll trade you her for a Porsche. And you're like, does it does the fin go up when I hit 70? And like, yeah, one of those. I'm like, dude, I'll trade. How does that make you feel to be in a relationship with somebody like that? What the hell? I'm a product. I'm, I thought I was a person. You mean I'm a good that makes you feel good? And you would trade me for a Porsche just because the back went up at 70 miles an hour? Hmm. How, how do you, yeah, that, that's not good. How do you tell, cause like I, like I know throughout my life, I'm definitely more attracted to extroverts than introverts. I'm extroverted. I want someone else who's enthused about everything to maybe a ridiculous degree. Um, and so I'm sure women are attracted to these. And I like, I like people who are disagreeable too. I like, I feel like, and this could be wrong. I feel like they're less likely to lie to spare my feelings which I, I don't like when people do that. So, but what 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 do you think about narcissists and lying? Like if they're high in conscientiousness, does that kind of hinder that because they don't care if they hurt your feelings or do they are they prone to lying? They they're prone to lying, but I'm trying to think of like uh, a I did a big I really did this big diary study. I can remember the stacks of paper in my office 15 years ago and we looked at it. I don't think we published a lot on it. I did do one chapter with a student looking at honesty and narcissism. And it, I think it does predict dishonesty, but I think it's primarily oh. going to be in self and sort of self-enhancing ways. So uh, it might predict cheating if it's a way to get ahead. So cheating on a test to get ahead, making up data so I get attention for a paper, lying about my success so people think I'm a big deal. So it mm. might be lies that are directed toward those things. You're also more likely to lie. If you care about yourself more than others, you're more likely to lie about them. But here's where it gets complicated, which you mentioned the agreeableness pieces. Uh, really nice people will lie all the time when you start yeah. collecting lie yeah. data. And when you look at it, they go, well, those are white lies. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. So, Michaela, when I told you all that stuff, when you said, I really want to know how my talk went, and I said it was yeah. great, even though it wasn't, I just didn't want to hurt your feelings. And yeah. you're like, I love you, and so I wanted you to hurt my feelings, so my feelings didn't get hurt in front of the live audience. Yeah. 
but the person cared too much they couldn't do it. So there's a lot of dishonesty, which if you get a guy who's kind of like, I can, I've dialed this back a whole lot because I've lived in the South a long time and softened it. I, I was in a, I'll just tell a story. I was in a meeting with a faculty member and he walks in. I'm like, well, dude, I guess you're not a rising star. You're not a superstar, but you're doing pretty well. And I thought I, I was just being honest. Oh my God. It, I mean, he was telling people about it five years later. I'm like, oh my God, never doing that again with the millennials, you know? And so that's funny. Uh, I mean, but but it was, and I felt really bad because that's terrible leadership. I was just kind of being myself. I should have kind of pumped him up and said, You're yeah, man, you're crushing it. You're doing great. You know, here's what I think would make you a superstar. And I could have framed it like you're almost there. And here's but I was like, Well, you're not a superstar. And I was thinking, well, but here's how we get there. Uh, yeah. My point is that. When you say I look for people who are kind of jerks and extroverted because they'll tell me the truth, you're probably right because they probably will okay. sometimes, but they're also probably manipulate you too because that's if they're more narcissistic. Perfect. So what you're what you're saying is like you're saying I'm selecting uh, for a kind of a, a cross section of traits, and in that cross section of people with those traits are going to be a lot more narcissism than the average population. It's like saying, hey, where do you want to meet somebody at at a nightclub or a bar? Or do you want to meet them, you know, at a, I don't know, emoji conference or something? I don't know what the introverts do. And you go, well, I, like, <laughs> I like meeting people at, I like meeting people at bars. They're going to be great. That's giving me more narcissism. You know, that's just yeah. how it is because you're selecting and that's, you're just getting more in that sample. But, but I get it because, you know, you like what you like. You want somebody with some energy, but also who's loving you. So narcissism isn't all bad. It's like, like I was saying, if you think about a big five, high extroversion, high agency, high assertiveness, plus low agreeableness. Well, if you took that person, the, the extroversion side's really good. That's what you fell in love with, to tell you the truth. That's what you liked initially. And the agreeableness, you go, man, if they were just nice, it would be perfect. You know, if they were really extrovert, but also a little nicer. Um, so half a narcissism is attractive and the other half is not attractive. And, and so we end up with these related, there's a, they use a lot of narcissistic characters in movies. And there's this one Dr. Strange. Have you ever seen that movie? Oh, He's like a I Marvel like, character. Yeah. Inappropriately young. My dad bought all the, that's Kubrick, right? Oh, I don't, I was thinking, no, oh. That's Doctor Strange Love. Of course, your oh, dad man, did that because that's, a... that's that's actually actual literary content with Slim Pickens driving, you know, going yeehaw on the bomb out of that. It was deep parody and Peter Sellers. No, this is garbage modern entertainment for the children. Okay. And so it's a Marvel character who's Doctor Strange. Who's oh, like, of course, Doctor. He's Strange. like a surgeon, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So he's a he's a classic super narcissistic character. That's his whole character. He's narcissistic. Yeah. He's a surgeon. His hands break, so he can't do his surgery. And because his entire value is wrapped around being a great surgeon, he's lost. And he can't just say, dude, I'm going to start writing books and be a teacher and all my friends. He can't do that because it's all ego. And then that's what breaks him. Um, and then he goes to that spiritual transformation. But but he's a classic narcissist. I mean, a freaking surgeon. Like, what's more narcissistic that you think of than a surgeon? And, and by the way, yeah. there's a reason surgeons are narcissistic because they kill people. I mean, like 
I had a buddy who's a neurosurgeon. He goes, you know, you kill people. He goes, you don't think about it, but when it's a high-risk surgery, people will die on your operating table. Very rarely. But if if you care so much, that's going to ruin your career. You can't be a surgeon. So you got to be a little callous to do the job, man, because you got the next patient. You know, you do it 100%. You work as hard as you can. You feel terrible, but only for a night. And the next day you feel good. Um, what are the what are the main professions of people who are narcissistic? Mm, that's a, a really good question. So if you imagine you're somebody who's narcissistic, so grandiose, I want positive attention and status from people. What I like is people looking up at me and thinking I'm a big deal. Well, where Podcaster. can I get that? <laughs> Podcaster. I, I will talk about podcasters in a minute if you want, because I think it's a little more complicated. But yeah entertainment. I want to be famous because if I'm famous, then people say, hey, Keith, I saw you on the Peterson show. You're famous. I go, oh, I love being famous. Thanks. <laughs> um, or I will be a leader. So I will become a leader of a company, the leader in the military, a leader of a church, because leadership is a way I can get status. So I'll try to be a politician. I'll try to do something where I get status. So entertainer, a status seeker, I'll try to get power over people. So I'll try to find some opportunity to control people. So at least I have that kind of deep power. That's probably politics, law, maybe. And um, another place you see it is uh, in the medical field. Again, you see it in surgeons. So there's a big study out of the UK and British narcissism is lower than in the US in general. Yeah. Um, but the higher narcissism scores were with the surgeons versus like general practitioners. Ah, uh, yeah. Makes sense. Fighter pilots versus ground crew. You know, the, the original astronauts, the Chuck Yeager, the Buzz Aldrin, those guys were kind of narcissistic. That was their profile. Risk takers. And the, like I say, and the original astronauts were narcissists, were narcissistic. Uh, the new astronauts, I say, are Canadian. They're very nice, and the reason for that is they because they're all there's six of them in a tube together, in floating around the world. If you put mm -hmm. six narcissists, in, if you put Chuck and Buzz and all those guys in a tube, they'd start breaking stuff. They'd be like, "This mission is ours." They'd fight over leadership. Then one of them be like, "We're going to Mars. Screw those idiots on Earth." <laughs> you know, that they're problems. You know, these mavericks are problems. So you find narcissists trying to get attention where they can, you know, trying to get places they can get status, esteem, et cetera. Your podcaster comment was great because I do, I've done a lot of podcasts and usually in a podcast, you end up chatting with somebody for an hour or two and it turns into kind of a real conversation. Sometimes you talk off air for half an hour afterwards. Yeah. Sometimes you end up becoming buddies with people. And if you're a podcaster, you can't you can't fake it. You have to be authentic or it's not going to work. Meaning, so it's so like Joe Rogan's a nice guy. Just, oh, yeah. He's a nice dude. And if you were a narcissist and was a fake BSer, that would have come out. You know, I talked to the guy would have come out in the first 30 minutes. I would have figured that out. But when you do old school television, you know, you go in there and you do a piece, like you jump on there, you got two minutes yeah. to say something clever and everybody looks good. And you, you know, so if you do old television, like the celebrities are there sitting there and then the people run out and do the puff up there. So you just got the shine off them. 
and then they do their fake smile and you do your five minute shtick and they're gone. You can be really narcissistic and do that job. I mean, that that's perfect for narcissists. So I think in the uh, when they um, Dr. Drew from the show Love Lines and a guy named Mark Young, who's a he's a real good dude. He's an accounting professor at USC. He's a really nice guy. And uh, they were interested in celebrity narcissism, which is a really interesting con- concept or question. And no one can get data on celebrities. So what they did was before the Love Line shows, Mark would show up in the green room, which is where I'm sorry, saying this for your audience. I'm sorry, but the green room is where you kind of hang out before going on a show. And so he'd hang out in the green room, chat with the celebrities, and he'd give them a, a version of the narcissistic personality inventory and a couple of questions, That's have them fill funny. it out, not put their name on it. So it was totally anonymous. Like so, because no one that's the only reason way these people would do it is if there's no way to trace it. Put yeah. him in a big bag so we could never find out. And but when they went through the data, it was fascinating because the highest scores for narcissism, the celebrities were the reality t- television stars. And the and the second highest was stand up comedy. Then it went to actors and the bottom were musicians. So when you think about hmm. it, it's you kind of interpret this. Who knows? It's one study. But. People who want to go on reality television generally are being famous for being famous. I, uh, you know, I chatted with Chris Williamson about that, who you you must know, Chris, but he's, you know, he's yeah. on that Love Island show. And yeah, it was really interesting because he's not like uh-huh. that at all, but he has such great insight into it. But he's like, yeah, that's pretty much it. Just shallow and narcissistic. Not much more to it. Um, stand-up comedy, you got to be narcissistic, narcissistic because you stand in front of a room of a thousand people who are going to mock you and heckle you, and you got to go to war with them. It's like being a professor, but they don't—they're kind of drunk and up for a good time, so it's harder. It'd be like it'd be like me teaching, but the students were wasted, and were and if they heckled me, nothing would happen. So you—it's—it's—it's it's, it's fun, but it's more of a contest. And what happens with musicians is if you're too narcissistic, you can't play in a group. So I talked because I'm in Athens, Georgia. Yeah. Athens, Georgia is is kind of a music town. So we're the home of the B-52s and REM and widespread panic. A lot of these kind of old groups came out of here and there's a lot of musicians. So I talked to them about it and they laughed and they said, oh, yeah, that's what we call like lead singer syndrome. You know, uh-huh. so sometimes and he goes, they go, yeah, in Athens, when that happens, we just send you to Nashville. So oh, that's so funny. So they're using social control that if a musician gets too big of an ego, they can't play with different groups. They can't be humble. They just like, we'll send them to Nashville with the other egomaniacs and they can kind of do their thing there. So <laughs> I, I think there's, you know, the way we set up fame, some is some is more conducive to being narcissistic or being a diva and some it some is suppresses that more. Yeah. I had a couple questions about social media because I think you've done some social media and narcissism research. Uh, and so, yeah, I wanted to get your your input on selfies and Instagram and narcissism. And then I had a question that I want to ask uh, before I forget it. But I, I what I assume is people who are more prone to take selfies are more prone to nar- being narcissistic. Is is that accurate? Uh since we yeah so when we <laughs> when we looked at the data it's it's a little more it's a little nuance um 
People who are more narcissistic are more comfortable taking and sharing selfies. Oh, comfortable. So, comfortable. They okay. boom, do it, share it uh, with grandiose narcissism, and they're more likely to share selfies, but it's a certain kind of selfie. So with narcissists, you're more likely to see uh, full body. You're more likely to see uh, more skin, and you're, it's more likely to be a true selfie, whereas people who are agreeable will take a lot of selfies but they're often with other people, you know, so they're like capture a picture with their friends and send it to their friends. Ah. And that is something that's more associated with some trade agreeableness. So the selfie itself can have a little different connotation to it. And people who are more vulnerable than the narcissistic, so sort of narcissistic, but with a lot of neuroticism, this, they'll do selfies, but it's really hard. So they'll do a selfie and they'll struggle with it because they like it's important for them to get good feedback, but they're not really sure. So it's so I talked to a couple influencers. I talked to one reporter who did a, uh, some in-depth reporting when people used to do that on social media influencers. And what it sounds like to me is that that life can be really it can be very challenging because what we see is somebody confidently putting out one snapshot in dubai or wherever they do selfies i guess dubai and yeah. the beach and what's behind the scenes is um a lot of stress and a lot of taking five or 15 shots and maybe going through 100 shots trying to get the right one and then putting out there and hoping the world thinks they're a legend does that make sense? So with vulnerable narcissism, um, it is even, um, it's really hard to take selfies, but they still do it, but it's work. So in general, uh -huh. narcissism, more selfies, but more individual, more body. And again, it's more about status and looking good versus looking about being like you're close or connected with people. That makes sense. I don't think I like taking selfies. I, I hate I it so much. The first one I had to do, I had to, I had to fake it. How did you it fake like it? A, well, it's like a journalist. It's like I did a paper. It's like, we want a picture of you with the selfie. And I'm like, dude, oh. I feel like an idiot. He's like, I'll just put your arm out and I'll just take a picture. So I just held my arm out and he took a picture. Oh. So I look like a selfie. It, it does, though, grow social media platforms, which grows an audience, which allows you to grow a business. So, so what happens then? <laughs> Um, social media, when they built it, I, I look at it this way. It's like social media runs on ego, not all ego. It can also run on cat humor and anger, but what makes people want to post and share? Well, it's ego. That's a big part of the network. So the people that are, the people who have more followers online are more narcissistic. The people who post more selfies are more narcissistic. Um, and that's, and so what that means is when I go on Twitter or Instagram, when I look at all the people, I'm going to see a world that's overrepresented or oversaturated with narcissism because the people putting out all the context mm. of so my network from the other side, I'm going to say, God, this is a narcissistic world. Um, it's not, it's overrepresented in terms of who's posting online. But what you're running into is the absolute problem is we all need to have a social media presence if you want to build a brand and get money so you can feed your children and pay your mortgage. So you have to do it. 
And people struggle with this if it's not natural to them. So if you notice, like I'm not on Twitter because I I, I love to talk to people, but like on Twitter, mm-hmm. I hate all the angry stuff. And I just, I'm just kind of yeah. like, I want to have a discussion without fighting and politics. So I, I like I start a stub stack, but I can't even write it because I'm like, ah, everyone's going to get pissed off. Who needs that nonsense? <laughs> um, but it sucks for my brand. So what I should do is suck it up and do it, or I should hire somebody that be my ego to go out there and promote me. And in the media world, that's called a publicist. So you would hire a publicist and go do publicity, and that would be a way to professionalize it. Um, But the truth is that if you have an ego or a comfortable self-promoting, it's a real advantage in the intellectual world just to get your ideas out there. And it didn't used to be that way, but now it kind of is. Mm-hmm. And so interesting. You that landscape gotta, is, yeah. You kind of got to just changed. suck it up and go for it. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, dude, my favorite acad- I mean, who was an advisor my, my favorite academic was a guy named Chet Insko, who was kind of on the spectrum, which was rare for a guy born in the thirties. He'd wear like, blue he'd what would he wear light blue pants a blue blazer and and uh new balance blue tennis shoes every day same outfit and he couldn't really talk to people but god he was smart he knew he was a great he was like one of the first great attitudes researchers hey one of the greatest conversations of my life with him was in the bathroom uncomfortably at the urinal because he didn't understand social relationships explaining why Pavlovian conditioning and two-value logic and Heider's balance theory of interpersonal attraction were all the same model fundamentally. Great conversation in the bathroom urinal with this guy who didn't know how to relate to people. He never made he never would make it in the modern world because he's not a self-promoter. But nowadays you kind of got to do it. The problem is we select for self-promoters that hurts science or it hurts other things because we're pulling so much for self-promotion, we're missing skill. So that's the, yeah. it's it's yeah. just a tough world. It's just the nature of it. But yeah, you, you kind of have to train yourself to do this stuff. I'm very comfortable with podcasts because it feels like authentic conversation. I'm not comfortable yeah. going out there and saying, oh, I'm a legend. I mean, fuck. That's probably good though. It's good I don't for even think most people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't even think most people... The, the crazy thing is that marketing does actually seem to work. Like I was talking to a contractor the other day who said he was buying uh, these classes online that taught you how to like get rich quick using uh, drop shipping and stuff like that. And I know that there are people online who've made money that way, but he certainly hasn't. He's spent a lot of money that way. And I was like, don't those kind of scream? I was like, you have to be careful because some of those kind of scream scam, no? Feels but apparently scammy. it doesn't. Yeah. Like apparently doesn't scream scam to everybody, even if some people look at it and you're like, well, that's definitely not real. I I notice uh, I'm always curious about people selling courses about how to get rich. Yeah. You always wonder if you knew how to get rich, why are you selling courses? Why aren't you in Maui? I shouldn't say Maui, I guess, because they, uh, but you know what I mean? Fiji right now. Yeah. 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 And then how did you get rich? Did you get rich by selling courses? And is that what you're teaching people to do? Some of those courses teach you to sell courses. It's so, like a course on course selling, kind of meta, yeah. meta course. I don't know. I've had people say sell a course. I'm like, dude, I, you know, I think I've done courses for people. It's cool. I just like 
I couldn't do it myself because I, I kind of, I got to get my self-esteem up. That's what I need to work on, my self-esteem. Then I can sell a course. Self-esteem. You'd sell a great course. What? No, no I, I'm all in favor of you. No, I know. I know. It's just when I like people like, oh, do a course online. I'm like, man, I can't even tweet. You know, I just, it's hard for me to do all that. Like, I just like it, you know, it's good to have a publicist and stuff because self-promotion's hard. I yeah. mean, even, and I got a big personality. It's not like I have any problem with the extroversion piece. I, I just was raised that if you're like promoting it yourself, you're kind of a loser. Like Rude. I was yeah. talking to my students today, um, talking about vulnerable narcissism. And there was a school shooter in Santa Barbara back in the day. And there's been so many of these now. But one of the things he wrote in his manifesto was, I'm going to go shoot people because I'm going to shoot. I'm going to show them who the real alpha male is now. And I said, you know, I said, if you're hanging out with a bunch of guys and somebody calls themselves an alpha male, I can tell you one thing. They're not an alpha male. (laughs) That's all I can tell you. Because if you if you just hang around with high status men, no one does that stuff. If a guy it's loser material, guys are quiet and uh, you, you, you hang around with people that are incredibly accomplished. You will never know because they won't say a thing. One of their buddies. like, Oh, you know, my buddy. Um, People don't say that because that's just that's just gross. It's just not what I mean. I I speaking for men. Just men don't do that. Successful men don't do that. That's kind of what boys do. Not even boys. Boys are cool. No one does that. It's narcissistic. Um. So the self promotion comes hard for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I that's probably why. Like now. So at the beginning when I was growing my uh, Instagram. It was pretty painful. Like everything you do is painful. Every bit of content's painful. And so the more I did it, the the less painful it got because I was like, oh, well, the repercussions to posting something I don't think is perfect aren't that high. No one really cares as much as you care. But uh, I have somebody else doing social media, so I don't have to do it. So then solves that problem. Right. But what you did was you outsourced that to somebody else, which is the best thing to do. It's still your content. I mean, they can just take your content and they can do the promotion stuff and they can deal with the people online. And you don't have to just you don't have to put yourself through that all the time. I I find it very difficult, but some people are very natural with it. And that's really positive. And, you know, people are different. I just do the fun stuff that's like replying to comments and things and sometimes posting the odd selfie. But like I've managed to outsource just constant content uploads, which is and then and then you don't have to be on it all the time like a job. Yeah. 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 Then then you have. Yeah. Outsourcing a lot of this is hard. And like the new media world where you've got to run the whole show yourself is really hard for people. I it's this new world is awesome uh, with social media, but it's also just kind of wild west in ways. It's it's cool. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Keith, that was very interesting. We went in a bunch of directions I wasn't planning on going. That was good. Thank well, you good. for coming I, I, Yeah. I thought that was really a fun conversation. Yeah. The part about intuition, that was good. I like that. Those are the kind of similar conclusions I've come to. That was helpful. Yeah. Ask your dad about it because he, he knows Jung better than I do. I've only made it most of the way through the Red Book, and he's probably read the Black Book too. But... Uh, <laughs> But I do think that that I think that's what Jung was really working on with with intuition. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to try those. I've been meaning to like delve into that a little bit more, but I, I want to delve into that because that's interesting. Yeah, I, 
our models of psychology are not dumb. We're pretty sophisticated, but still our understanding of the human condition is very, very limited. That we are, there's a lot more to do. And we're a very young science. And I think sometimes people think, well, if you haven't studied it, it's not real. It's like, no, we haven't got to it. And the feds aren't, you know, there's not a lot of federal grant money to study intuition and vibes. So it's not like it's uh-huh. a big, big <laughs> rush. So, you know, I think a lot, there's a lot of interesting things we're going to see over the years come out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if people do want to find you online, is there a website or anywhere people can oh, go? Oh, um, I have WKeithCampbell.com. That needs to be updated, but I haven't found a person yet. And uh, I'm on Twitter sometimes at WKeithCampbell. And that's Perfect. about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for coming on. Oh, that was fun. Thanks so much. <laughs>